I think the politics of the catastrophe is just much more complicated than people want it to be. There were lots of people last year writing awful op-eds saying, this shows that the Chinese system is much superior to our chaotic democratic system. And this was just nonsense because the Chinese system was the reason the pandemic happened. They had the Chernobyl problem at the beginning, that everybody lied in ways that you wouldn't have had if the virus had originated in a Western country. So I don't think it's right to say that what happened last year was some great advert for the Chinese model, nor was it a terrible indictment of the American system. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. It has now been over half a year since Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential elections. It's easy to forget how pivotal that election was, how disastrous things would be if Trump was now at the beginning of his second office and how rare an achievement it was for uh, overtime populists to be thrown out of office for free and fair elections after only one term. So if you're interested in the fate of overtime populists around the world and the prospects for a democratic fight back, the key question is whether that was an aberration or whether it was the beginning of a wider trend. Now, it will be easy to make the case for pessimism. Big populist democracies from India to Brazil are still ruled by authoritarian populists. People like Narendra Modi in India, or for that matter, Recep Erdogan in Turkey, seem to be quite firmly in the saddle. And it is, of course, possible that Donald Trump or one of his allies will come back to power in 2024. It is possible that Marine Le Pen might become president of France less than a year from today. And yet, for the first time, I can see some real signs that justify hope. When I look at authoritarian populists in Western Europe, many of them seem to be stagnating. In the German elections, it looks as though the alternative for Germany will not exceed its result from four years ago. It may even fall back to single-digit support. Yes, there is a real risk of Marine Le Pen getting elected president of France in 2021, but in recent regional elections, she had to suffer a lot of disappointments. She proved unable to win a majority in any single region in the country. Something similar could be said for countries from Denmark to Sweden, uh, to Greece, to the Netherlands. In all of these countries, populist parties remain strong, but are no longer rising in the way they were a few years ago. A second reason for hope is that many of the authoritarian populists who came in with huge promises, huge hopes invested in them by a part of the population have disappointed voters and many of them are starting to turn away. It is now quite likely that Jair Bolsonaro will not be able to win re-election in Brazil. AMLO in Mexico has lost much of his parliamentary strength in congressional elections in June, in which he did about 20 points less well than he had done four years ago. Even in Hungary, a key country I keep coming back to because political scientists had once thought that its democracy had been consolidated before Viktor Orban took power in the early 2010s and undermined the system, suddenly is showing signs of hope. 
the united opposition is running neck to neck with Orban's Fidesz in opinion polls, and it is possible that they might displace him from power this coming year. It's far too early to declare peak populism. It's far too early to stop sounding the alarm. But for the first time in five or six years, I can see what it would look like if populism starts to stagnate or fade. I can see a path forward by which the world will look a lot more hopeful a few years from now. Let's hope that we are able to take that path. Today, my guest is Neil Ferguson. Neil is a distinguished British historian who has worked on everything from the history of Rothschilds to World War I. His new book is Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. We talked about not just COVID, but the history of human catastrophe from the ancient world through the Middle Ages to the modern world, what the patterns are in how humans screw up again and again, how that has changed and shifted in the modern age of bureaucracy, and what all of that tells us about the prospects of free societies and the prospects of democracies as they face a resurgent authoritarian threat in the 21st century. Neil Ferguson, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It is extremely nice to be with you, Yasha. It's wonderful to see you and that great, is that a cello or a bass in the background? Uh, that is an upright bass. I'm a bass player, not a cellist. And I don't claim any great level of proficiency because I've played jazz ineptly for the last, gosh, nearly 40 years since I was an undergraduate at Oxford. But it is uh, one of the consolations of our time to be able to play music, however amateurishly. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing you in a jazz concert sometime. And my mother will be horrified that even though it's, you know, relatively distant in the picture, I didn't eyeball the difference between a cello and a contrabass. It's like a little hard to tell. Impression. Perspective on Zoom is somewhat skewed. It could equally well be a cello, I think, at this distance. But yeah, I'm not talented enough to play a cello. I can muddle through with the jazz double bass. It's a forgiving instrument because most people can't hear your bum notes when you screw up. Oh, they can't distinguish them. Listen, so you have just written a book about not such a nice thing as music, but the different disasters and catastrophes that have afflicted us in human history and what we can learn from them. Is there a common pattern? I mean, when you think of starvation in the ancient world, pestilence in the Middle Ages and you know, nuclear accidents in the 1980s, we seem like three completely different things. Are there any commonalities that are worth thinking through? Yes, I think there are. And that's why I wrote the book, the sense that one ought to be able to discuss the history of disaster as a whole and seek those common factors. I was partly inspired by Amartya Sen's observation many years ago that famines were not natural disasters, but were in fact man-made. And I remember thinking as I was writing this book, why would it only be true of famines. Maybe we should think of all disasters as having this kind of political or human dimension. And then the little voice in my head said, but oh, what about volcanoes or earthquakes? And then the other voice said, but you know, it takes 
human decisions to build a city at the foot of a volcano or right on a fault line. And we are very good at that. And then to rebuild the city when the disaster has happened and, and wait for the next one. So I wanted to write a book and the subtitle gives the game away about the politics of catastrophe and to argue that all disasters, even if you call some natural and some man-made, have to have this human factor to translate into really significant numbers of deaths. So that was one reason for writing the book. And then I wanted to try and explore how it is that disasters happen. I mean, you just can't say, although you can try, but you can't actually say with any likelihood of success when the next earthquake will be in California. And you can't say when the next really big war will be because there's just no pattern that tells you that. These things aren't normally distributed. You can't even attach probabilities to these things. So the other thing that disasters have in common is that you really, really can't predict them. And that means that they always feel surprising. Even if you've been telling yourself for decades, oh, there's going to be a big pandemic, when it actually happens, you feel blindsided. And that seemed like an important theme to tease out. And the third theme, which I'm quite proud of, which was inspired by reading about a completely different kind of disaster from a pandemic, namely the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger, is the idea that the point of failure in a disaster isn't necessarily at the top, although it's very tempting to pin the blame on whoever's at the top. The point of failure in the case of the Space Shuttle Challenger was not there. It wasn't the president's fault. It was the fault of mid-level bureaucrats at NASA. So those are some of the common themes that the book offers. And I you know, I wrote it to try and help myself understand disaster better. And I think at the end of it, I do. And I think I've come to some views that are distinctly contrarian. And that is always, for me, a motivation, not only to write a book, but to talk about it. One of the things I learned from your book was the story of the Challenger explosion, that actually the design flaw that led to this particular catastrophe had been known. You know, there were some attempts made to remedy it and they thought it was sufficient, but really it was the time pressure to meet a relatively arbitrary deadline that led to Challenger being launched with that design flow in place. What does that tell us about the broader sort of patterns of disaster? I assume that in order to count as a man-made rather than a natural disaster, there has to be some form of foreseeability. Even if we can't predict when the next earthquake is going to happen, we know that there is going to be the big one in California eventually, and that likely many, many people will die from it. So it seems like there is this human pickheadedness to go ahead and ignore the risk, even when we know about it. Is that the common thread? Or what is the common thread of a number of common threads that help to structure these different disasters? Let me start with the challenger and then maybe try to illustrate the broader point with the COVID pandemic. This all comes from Richard Feynman's amazing book on the Challenger disaster. He was the physicist at Caltech that they called in to be on the Commission of Inquiry, and he was a thoroughly disruptive influence on that commission, wasn't having any of the Washington formalities, and wandered around asking NASA engineers to tell him what they thought. And he found out that the, the engineers had known that there was a roughly one in a hundred chance the thing would blow up because of leakages. And they knew exactly what the point of failure was. There was this thing called the O-ring, which was supposed to be a seal that stopped the fuel and the launching rockets leaking. And at cold temperatures, it was ineffective and the fuel leaked. So the engineers knew this. But what Feynman discovered was that the bureaucrats at NASA 
in particular the enigmatic figure of Mr. Kingsbury, turned that into one in a hundred thousand. So they reduced the probability of failure by three orders of magnitude and then reported that to Congress. And Feynman's question was, well, what was their motivation? And his answer was, well, you've got this great space program. You want to keep it going. The funding is coming from Congress. And if you tell them there's a one in a hundred chance of failure, that could be the end. And so there was a sort of bureaucratic lie that really explained what had happened. And in Doom, I try to dig even deeper and go all the way to the engineers at the firm that built the rockets. They knew too, but they were also told to shut up by their middle managers. So I think this is the kind of key to the problem. And it's a problem that's become more pronounced in the age of bureaucracy. Bureaucracies don't necessarily do good risk assessment, or they can give the impression of it, but in fact deliver something that's completely dysfunctional. And I think the best illustration of this is COVID, because on paper, and this is the shocking thing, on paper, the United States was the best prepared country in the world for a pandemic. This was something that in 2019, the Economist Intelligence Unit published based on a huge project that the Johns Hopkins people were involved in too. And at number one was the United States, and number two, the United Kingdom. And I delved into these findings, and sure enough, on paper, there were elaborate pandemic preparedness plans. There was a new one, 36 pages long in 2018, and multiple agencies produced these. All kinds of agencies had pandemic preparedness plans. It's just that none of them worked. And it was the same in the UK, as Dominic Cummings was pointing out in his testimony just the other day in London. The plan didn't work. It was either, as he put it, useless or non-existent. So I think the problem, and it's a problem that's got worse in, let's say, the last 20 or 30 years, is that we have the illusion of preparedness. For disasters that we have good reason to anticipate, though we don't know their exact timing, we have all this paperwork that says we're ready. But when it actually happens, it turns out that much of this was just ass covering rather than real preparation. And I bet you the same is true of an earthquake. For sure, there'll be a big earthquake near where I'm sitting. I'm not far from the San Andreas fault line as I speak to you. And I bet you there's an earthquake preparedness plan in Sacramento, and it's probably 36 pages long. But I guarantee it will be of very little use when this actually happens. Because I don't think that bureaucratic preparedness is actually preparedness at all. It's virtual or simulated preparedness, fake preparedness, maybe. So this is a particular problem of a bureaucratic apparatus and a bureaucratic world, which is relatively new and modern. I don't know exactly where you would date the beginning of it, but certainly when you go back to the Middle Ages or when you go back to the ancient world, that is not the kind of problem you face. But isn't that just the latest form that a deeper set of human attitudes take, which is that actually we're very good at putting danger and risk out of our mind, perhaps because of the need to deal with mortality and our unwillingness to contemplate the fact that one day we all shall die. And haven't humans made choices to expose themselves to risk, perhaps rationally in pursuit of the benefits that that risk can come with, or irrationally because we don't want to dwell on doom and catastrophe, throughout history. You know, I'm thinking about what you made a kind of implicit reference to. Vesuvius, which explodes, destroys a giant settlement. And today, Naples is one of the biggest cities in Italy, you know, right at the foot of the volcano. 
I'm thinking of parallels to COVID in past centuries. There's a harrowing story of, I believe, Marseille opening its gates to sailors at the height of the pandemic because of the damage being done to local tradesmen. This is pre-capitalist Marseille, but economic pressures, the need to feed people, the need to have economic activity existed before capitalism. And there was a huge wave of disease that was in fact imported by those ships. So it seems like well before the bureaucratic age, you have a lot of these same patterns. So what's specific about this bureaucratic age and what of it is just the latest expression of a sort of universal human tendency? Yes, part of the fun, and it was fun, of writing this book was to address the fundamental question of our relationship to death, not only our own individual death, but death generally. And I think it's true to say that we have got into a strange relationship with death compared with previous generations. On the one side, we're quite fascinated by the idea of the end of the world. We're drawn to science fiction that deals with this subject. When Greta Thunberg or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez predicts the end of the world due to climate change, we're very inclined to listen to these prophecies. And so there's a great deal of human culture going all the way back to the earliest times, which is preoccupied with the end time. It's there in the book of Revelation. It's copied and pasted into Islam. So we clearly find this idea very, very interesting. And we kind of overpredict the end of the world because you may have noticed that it hasn't happened despite thousands of years of prophecy. At the same time, I think we found it harder and harder to deal with the reality of our own individual death and with the fact that death happens, and it happens on a large scale in a very populous country. So most people don't really have a clear sense of what death is like these days. Unlike in the past, we kind of cut off from it uh, quite carefully in a way that wasn't true, as Philippe Arias pointed out long ago in the Middle Ages, or even in the early modern period. I love the fact that Americans don't even use the word die anymore, because here people pass. You know, we Europeans think of that as something you do when you're playing soccer, but Americans always pass and I can't help it. I just always want to say die because I feel as if Evelyn Waugh got it very right in The Loved One. Americans are in denial about death itself and that's not healthy. It means that when there is a sudden increase in the probability of death in a pandemic, or when we're suddenly told, actually, we're not going to make it to 80, we've just diagnosed cancer, we aren't very well equipped to deal with that. And that produces, I think, wild swings of mood and in very imperfect calibration. And this is certainly going all the way back in history. That's to say, at the approach of death, the sudden increase of probability of death or proximity of death, we either are in denial about it, like the First World War soldiers who sang the bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me on the eve of the Somme offensive. Amazing. Or we panic and completely freak out so that we conclude from our own predicament that it must be the end of the world and that the only thing to do in a pandemic is to lock the door and stay indoors until a vaccine is delivered. I mean, that kind of swing from complacency to panic was something that happened in many countries last year, including in the United States. And some people kind of stuck with complacency and became in a political position. And at the other extreme, other people went for, for panic as a political position. I think we have great difficulty and always have done as a species in dealing with this fact of mortality. And when it suddenly becomes more imminent, 
we don't handle it well. And that's quite apart from the bureaucracy point. Let me add one little footnote or qualification. The reason that I got interested in the point of failure being bureaucracy was that I had to answer a question. And the question is why, with our much greater scientific knowledge, vastly greater scientific knowledge than they had in the Middle Ages when they were dealing with bubonic plague, why with that knowledge are we not doing better? Because it seems like we really ought to be much, much better at this than we seem to be. And that's an important sub-question that the book addresses. It's not like we just did badly with COVID. We've done badly with the whole succession of disasters, of crises. I'd go back to 9-11 and I'd say we didn't really deal with that well. Then the financial crisis didn't deal with that well. That wasn't for lack of agencies preparing reports about terrorist attacks, financial crises, and pandemics. It was because at some level, these activities didn't deliver what a society really needs, which is a rapid reaction plan that's proportionate to the threat. That seems to be the thing we lack. I mean, this to me is the most shocking finding of COVID. It is not you know, the ways in which the United States did better or worse than Germany or Germany did better or worse than Sweden. It is the utter failure of all three of those countries to do what we would have predicted they would be able to do, to put in place a test, trace, and isolate regime, to actually contain the pandemic, to minimize the number of deaths. How much should we worry about our ability collectively to deal with catastrophes in the future? And what does it tell us, even beyond, for example, our ability to deal with climate change, about our collective social cohesion? Is this ultimately owed to just an inability to say, hey, here's a giant problem and we're going to marshal the resources of society and the economy in a rational way in order to deal with that because we are so divided against each other, because we're so polarized, because we're more interested in political posturing than in actually solving the, the problems. I mean, it's made me personally much more pessimistic, for example, about the ability of Western democracies to sustain themselves and outcompete the challenges that they're increasingly facing around the world. Well, I think you're right that the striking thing is not that one Western country did slightly better than another. The striking thing is that they all did pretty badly. And it didn't really matter terribly much whether you had a populist leader or not. The news would be better, actually, if all democracies had screwed up. But what really reproaches us is the fact that some Asian democracies did really well. And Taiwan and South Korea, New Zealand, really an imitation of them, showed that a democracy can perfectly well ramp up testing, do contact tracing, isolate people who are potentially infected and protect the people who are most vulnerable. That wasn't impossible for a democracy. And actually, it was the Asian democracies who did best in 2020. On the other hand, the picture would be worse if the Western democracies had also screwed up vaccines. But as I was writing Doom, which I had to kind of stop doing in around October, that was the last kind of date for changes. I still didn't have the phase three results from the vaccines. But I was kind of fairly confident just on the basis of historical patterns that the Western vaccines would be way better than the Chinese ones. And I was also fairly confident that we could actually get those vaccines distributed quite well. And that turned out to be right. In fact, the vaccines were best than expected. The, the efficacy of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines was amazing. And this was a victory for biotech companies in the US, Moderna in Germany, 
BioNTech, and it really left the Chinese competition standing. And so I think when you look at the whole story so far, and it of course isn't over, you get this terrible mess in 2020, particularly in the first few months of the pandemic, when just about every Western country messes up. And then paradoxically, the countries that messed up the worst do best in vaccination. And that really is true of the UK and the US. And the Europeans are catching up and there's been a lag. Actually, it's not a huge lag in the great scheme of things. There may be a couple months behind in terms of how quickly they can reopen. But in the end, the Western countries got the most important thing right. There's one thing you're going to get right in a pandemic. Coming up with vaccines that work is really number one. So I think the picture is at once worse and better than we think. And the good news is that there are democracies that could get this right. But the irony is that those same democracies left vaccination to one side because they thought they didn't really need to worry. And now Taiwan is grappling with an outbreak because they actually vaccinated practically nobody and weren't ready for a more virulent, more transmissible variant to get through their defences. You know, I read some stuff that you wrote on this, Yash, and admired it. I think the politics of the catastrophe is just much more complicated than people want it to be. There were lots of people last year writing awful op-eds saying, this shows that the Chinese system is much superior to our chaotic democratic system. And this was just nonsense because the Chinese system was the reason the pandemic happened. They had the Chernobyl problem at the beginning that everybody lied in ways that you wouldn't have had if the virus had originated in a Western country. You just wouldn't have been able to keep it quiet for weeks and weeks and weeks that there was human-to-human transmission in the way that they did. So I don't think it's right to say that what happened last year was some great advert for the Chinese model, nor was it a terrible indictment of the American system. I mean, at times you kind of cradled your head in your hands thinking, how much more can they screw this up? And how many more idiot things will Trump say? But as Churchill said, the United States always does the right thing when all the alternatives have been exhausted. And that's kind of been the way the pandemic has played out. It's not unfamiliar for the US to start a crisis really badly. And then with amazing self-repairing superpower, get much better. One of the most striking museum exhibits I ever saw was as a child, a huge wall, which showed the growth of a human population. And, you know, broadly speaking, it had a big dip in the Middle Ages at the time of the Black Death, significant decline in the world population. It had a small dip, which I think now may be historically doubted, according to newer figures, during World War I, because of World War I and the Spanish flu. And then, of course, it had exponential increase, one that, you know, given my family history, also struck me, continued through World War II. Now, the really striking thing, if you want to put a positive spin on the last year or two, is that we've had tremendous suffering a very significant number of people who died, a very significant number of people who died because of human failure and bureaucratic failure and the politicization of our societies and all of those things. If you wanted to put a positive spin on this catastrophe and all of the past catastrophes of humanity that we've talked about, it is but a blip in the evolution of our species. We will be more affluent. We will lead longer lives. We'll have a greater human population 15, 30 or 50 years from now despite COVID. So how do we think about the role of catastrophe? Well, on the one hand, it can cost us loved ones, mark human epochs in this very deep way. And yet at a high enough level of abstraction, the human species 
has this remarkable resilience where we go through, you know, the worst global pandemic in a century. And when you look at average life expectancy around the world, number of humans in the world, affluence of humans, it will likely be no more than a dip in some of the aggregate statistics. It would, won't be easy to see it in that kind of wall 50 years from now. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at the proportion of the world's population that has so far been killed by COVID, it's around 0.047%. 0.047. And even if you buy the notion that these numbers, and I was just using the Johns Hopkins numbers, are a big underestimate, even if you buy the economists' argument that it's really much, much larger than that, you still will struggle to get above 0.1%. This is a very small proportion of the world's population compared with the Black Death, where it could have been a third of humanity that was killed, according to at least one estimate I've seen, though we don't obviously have various sort of strong statistics. We know that in large parts of Europe, 30 or 40% of the population was killed. It's therefore, you know, three orders of magnitude worse. The Spanish influenza of 1918-19 was probably 30 or 40 times worse than this. Actually, our pandemic only recently overtook the 1957-58 Asian flu, which pretty much everybody has forgotten about. So you're right, although whether it's three or four or six or nine million people that you say have fallen victim to COVID, this is not a big number in relation to the world's population. And even in 2020, shocking though it may seem, COVID was not the number one cause of death in the United States. Heart disease and cancer still killed more people. We know that there was a significant increase in excess mortality, which is the kind of best way of thinking about this last year. But the age-adjusted death rate basically went up in the US by about 16%. COVID was responsible for about one in 10 deaths. And people die. And this is the thing that we struggle a little bit with. When you tell people how many people die in a normal year in the United States, they're kind of incredulous because at some level, Americans don't really think death should be allowed. And they hold politicians responsible for it when it intrudes on their lives unexpectedly. I think, though, that there's something interesting going to happen on that wall chart you just described, which is that the population growth that characterized the last couple of hundred years is coming to an end. And we're actually entering a period of population contraction in many countries, including the most populous country, China. And if one looks out uh, to the rest of this century... It's already pretty clear that we're kind of peaking in terms of numbers. And if pandemics are going to become, I was going to say a feature, not a bug, and then I thought it was a terrible pun, but if they're going to become more of a problem because this interconnected world, in fact, is very pandemic prone, despite our scientific knowledge, maybe that decline in population will be just a little bit faster than the UN's standard model currently projects. At any event, I think the wall chart, if it's still around, will look a lot different by the time we get to the end of this century. And maybe COVID will show up as a part of that inflection point that I think was already there baked in the cake because of falling fertility. But a little bit of additional mortality, particularly bear in mind what this disease did. This disease would have been very popular with social Darwinists 100 years ago. And if you told the social Darwinists a century ago, there's this virus that kills people predominantly over the age of 65 and unfit people who are already sick with some comorbidity, the social Darwinists would be like, wow, that sounds great. Where can I get it? You know, how soon can we release it? 
this is a very odd kind of pandemic compared with all the pandemics I've studied because they mostly kill the very young as well as the very old. And this one didn't, which was really very lucky because I'm glad I, I had to worry only about my mother and not about my kids. This is, I think, part of a general phenomenon that future historians may think of a bit differently from us. They may say, well, these Western countries had allowed their populations to get historically quite old. They weren't very good at keeping people healthy. They kept them alive, but they weren't very healthy. And often they were very overweight or they had other existing conditions. It's kind of wasn't too surprising that a virus figured out a way of taking those people out in significant numbers. Again, let's not exaggerate. It's not like a really large proportion of people over 65 have died in the United States. It's really quite a small fraction, even of that age group that has been killed. So I think part of the point of writing Doom was just to kind of get these orders of magnitude right so that we can get a handle on well, how big a disaster is this really and how does it fit into the great scheme of human demographics and human history? I want to go from the grand sweep of human history and from the topic of catastrophes and pestilence and diseases to this political moment. You know, we have spat in the past about the importance and the role of the rise of authoritarian populism and how much of a threat it posed to democracy. How do you see this political moment with certainly people like Narendra Modi in power and in India, and I would argue posing a real threat for Indian democracy, people like Recep Erdogan having consolidated their rule in Turkey, but the waters looking admittedly a little calmer in Western Europe, Donald Trump having been ousted in a free and fair election from office in the United States. How would you describe this political moment? Well, as you know, Yash, I was never one of those people who thought it was the Weimar Republic on the Potomac and the American Republic was in grave danger. I was not a Trump fan, but I thought that the Constitution had been quite carefully designed by the founders in anticipation that someone like him would one day become president. And it kind of worked according to the design. Uh, separation of powers really constrained Trump. The courts constantly thwarted his more rash actions. He lost the midterms. That's how it's supposed to work. And then he lost the election. I mean, that's how it's supposed to work. Nobody said it was going to be pretty. But I think that the American system withstood that test. And even when on January the 6th, it seemed as if uh, some kind of a coup could be happening, on closer inspection, there was just this fiasco in which Trump, who never really thinks through the consequences of his actions, exhorted a mob. And there was a disastrous failure of policing at the Capitol. The people who went in there included some obviously fanatical far writers, but most of them just seemed like clueless losers. So this definitely wasn't a Weimar moment. And you and I know enough about the history of interwar Germany to know that if we took everybody back in a time machine to 1932-33, it definitely wouldn't be like what we've been living through. So I think we got a little overexcited. I say we are intelligentsia, the commentariat, about how bad things were in the United States. And there was a version of that in Europe because the populist right seemed to be riding high 2016 with Brexit. But in reality, you know, since 2019, what has the big story been? The Greens are coming and the, the far right has really been losing ground even since before the pandemic. So I think, you know, rumours of the death of democracy were distinctly exaggerated. The populist problem is a real one. I don't want to dispute the 
the harm that was done and has still been done by populist leaders. I don't know what percentage of the excess mortality we can attribute to Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro and Narendra Modi. Some percentage? Half? No. Most of this excess mortality would have happened to whoever was president because it was a failure of the public health bureaucracy, as we were discussing earlier. And I think the populace made it worse at the margin, but it's hard for me to believe that they really were the reason for such large numbers of excess mortality. So I'm going to take the sanguine view, even for Brazil, that Bolsonaro is going to lose. Maybe Lula could be back. And, you know, I think Modi's going to run out of road too. The problem with populists is that unless they change the constitution, this is the Latin American method, they lose because they can't ever really deliver. I mean, they always come in saying to their voters, I'm going to do amazing things for you. You're going to have growth and jobs and it's going to be amazing. And it never is because they always screw it up. And Trump was entirely true to form in that respect. My sense that it would all go to shit before very long. I wrote about that in an essay in 2017 saying the half-life of populism is really short because they never can deliver. And he was kind of getting there with the economy at the end of 2019 and then bam, an actual crisis happens and the incompetence proves politically fatal because that's why he lost. He would have won but for COVID. But COVID just exposed him to a significant number of Americans who previously voted for him as an incompetent and he lost. That's how it's supposed to work. So I'm a relative optimist about that. But I think we have some problems nonetheless in that there are some proper totalitarian regimes out there, one in particular, which is really going from strength to strength. And at the end of the book, I suggest that that's really quite a worrying thing, that the more one looks closely at Xi Jinping's China, the more it looks like he's resuscitating many of the traits of mid-20th century totalitarian regimes. The ideological insistence on Marxism, Leninism, and Xi Jinping thought, the concentration camps in Xinjiang, the crackdown in Hong Kong, you know the list. And it's not really the weaknesses of democracy that worry me so much as the pathologies of an old-fashioned totalitarian one-party state. That, I think, combines the two different strands of a conversation, which is to say, if this pandemic has given us reason to worry that it will be hard for the United States to come together in the face of future catastrophes like perhaps climate change, it may also make us worry that we will have real trouble coming together in the face of a serious authoritarian challenge from rising powers around the world. Now, perhaps the more optimistic way of putting this is that it's very hard to be united, to rally around the flag when the enemy is an invisible virus, all the particles of which that have been produced so far in the world probably amount to a few grams of weight and that doesn't have a face. It may be easier if it's you know, some kind of a geopolitical or military skirmish with a geopolitical foe that has a human leader in which there may be soldiers that are killed by enemy fire. So I guess, do you think that the United States and West more broadly will prove an equal to the challenge from authoritarian regimes around the world? Or do you think that many of the flaws that have been so richly on display in the last 15 months should make us very worried about our ability to meet this moment? I think one of the key points I make in Doom is that after pandemics, the worst disasters in human history have been wars. And the biggest wars, the world wars, were 
in many ways, the results of misunderstandings, underestimates of the other side's intentions. And certainly that was true of, of 1914. I think in 1938-39, in the same way as in 1940, Britain had fundamentally failed to deter Germany from taking an enormous strategic risk. And these are events that we must never cease to study, because I do see a way in which the same thing can play out between the United States and China. The Chinese right now think that the US is a kind of busted flush paper tiger or whatever, that it's kind of decadent and degenerate and past its prime. And they definitely become more self-confident in a way that almost reminds me of Wilhelmine Germany. And so you end up with the kind of familiar pattern where a small country that doesn't hugely signify turns out to be strategically of existential importance, Taiwan. You know, for Belgium, 1914, read Taiwan for Poland 1939, read Taiwan. And it doesn't probably seem to Xi Jinping that the United States will go to war over Taiwan, which he's committed to bringing back within the fold of the CCP and ending as a functional democracy. But he might be wrong about that. And I think that's the big puzzle for me. What happens next year, say, if the Chinese do make a move on Taiwan? Does the Biden administration do what the Woodrow Wilson administration did and the Franklin Roosevelt administration did? Does it do what Truman did over Korea in 1950 and say, actually, we're going to war over this? And everybody's sort of shocked in the totalitarian regime because they didn't really think that would happen. I think that's a very concerning scenario, Yasha. I think if you ask me what's the probability of a Taiwan crisis, it's very high and it could be as soon as next year. After the Winter Olympics, remember, Putin went into Ukraine and ex-Crimea. After the Winter Olympics in Beijing, who knows? Does it produce a war? I don't know, because I just don't know whether the Biden administration would do it or whether they'd fold. And so you could either have 1914 or something like 1939 or 1950, or you could have the Suez crisis. The, the US could just fold. And then everybody has this sort of moment of realization that, oh, China is in fact now number one, and we no longer need to regard the United States as preeminent in the Indo-Pacific. I don't really like either of those scenarios. I'd prefer to deter China from making that kind of move. But if we don't deter China, we're going to confront this awful choice of either war or capitulation. And that's the worst choice in international relations that you can face. You've studied World War I and its origins in masterful studies early in your career, and you thought about the longer-run history of catastrophe in this book. What lessons can we draw from these historical precedents if we want to make sure that democracy thrives in the 21st century, that we're able to compete with and hopefully deter authoritarian challenges? But we certainly also want to avoid the ultimate catastrophe of human history, which would be an all-out World War III. What do we need to change about our politics, about our society in the coming years? In many ways, that's been the great question of my career ever since I wrote The Pity of War back in the late 1990s. I think there are two things. The first is that if you are going to have a verbal or treaty commitment to a country, then you must make sure that you can back that up with credible military force. Otherwise, it's a kind of terrible option in which if your bluff is cold, you have to execute the option before you're militarily capable of doing it, which is exactly what happened to Britain in 1914 and again in 1939. And I think the US could make that mistake, especially if the Biden administration continues to talk the talk of what amounts to Cold War II without really walking the walk. Remember, the defense budget is going to shrink. 
you might consider it bloated. But the truth is that the United States has a lot of superannuated hardware. And this brings me to my second point. The next war is never the war that you imagine. It doesn't ever really resemble the last war, or at least not as closely as you assume as you plan. And I think this next war will have a very, very significant cyber component to it. Now, if you asked me, you know, what are the kind of near-term disasters? I think climate change is a relatively medium to long-term disaster, and it's a very important one. But we devote far too much of our time and energy to that one disaster scenario and not enough to things that can happen much more quickly. If there were a US-China showdown, I think the Russians and the Chinese together would launch a massive cyber attack on US critical infrastructure, and they could shut this country down. If a bunch of crooks in Eastern Europe can close down the principal oil pipeline of the East Coast of the United States, if you can take out meatpacking companies, if it's that easy, if the Chinese were attacking a major cybersecurity provider, RSA, back in 2011, I think the most obvious way we could get really screwed would be a successful large-scale cyber attack that shut down our internet, shut down our cell phones, just cut us off. We're so dependent on this technology now in every domain, from supply chains to just what you and I are doing now, that I think the United States would be in a total and utter shambles pretty quickly if that were done even half successfully, and even if it only were for a week. I worry a lot about that. It seems to me like that will make 9-11 look like a walk in the park. And we probably have a preparedness plan for this cyber attack, and it's probably about as good as the pandemic preparedness plan. So that's crucial. We need to imagine the war of the future much, much more than I think institutionally we're able to do at the moment. Because let's face it, the established defense institutions are wedded to the old technologies. You know, that's what they do. And the hardest thing is to get people to admit the aircraft carriers, they're going to get sunk. Sorry you have to think again. That's the difficult bit. And again, I think history points us again and again to the danger of preparing for the last war, not the next one. That sounds like a very convincing and scary account of what a confrontation with Nofutan power might look like. The one piece you didn't address is the perhaps old-fashioned and backward-looking fear that I have about what something like a Taiwan crisis might result in, and that's nuclear war. Do you think that if there is a military confrontation to determine supremacy of leadership in the world between China and the United States, there is a realistic path to avoid nuclear confrontation? Because that seems even scarier than the scenario you just pointed out. Well, Admiral James Stavridis, my good friend, just published a novel. Often the best way of thinking about the war of the future is through fiction rather than nonfiction. And the novel 2034 basically imagines an escalation to nuclear in a US-China war in which Cities on both sides get destroyed. I think San Diego, and I forget the other one he destroys in the nuclear phase of the war. So don't ask me, ask people who've done this stuff for a living. I think all the people who think about this know that just as in 1950, the United States couldn't really prevail in a war against China. Remember, it didn't win the Korean War. It was a draw. It couldn't really prevail without nuclear weapons. It's clear that as we are currently equipped, a conventional war over Taiwan or the South China Sea would be lost by the United States. And that's why you're absolutely right to raise this, because although nuclear war no longer looms over us as it did when I was young back in the 1980s, actually it's just as probable 
as it was then, even although China is significantly less well-armed in nuclear terms than the Soviet Union was, and that's worth bearing in mind. Still, it seems to me that what makes modernity different from the ancient and medieval worlds is precisely that we finally came upon these cataclysmically destructive weapons. And my longstanding argument with Steve Pinker has been that however much progress we may be able to discern in our relationship to violence, it takes one day of nuclear war to bring that story to a terrible end, just as Norman Angel's story that war was becoming more and more impossible fell apart just a few years after he published The Great Illusion when war broke out in 1914. One of the lessons that I've taken over the last year is that I want to lead a life that is intellectually exciting in which I get to think new thoughts and have fascinating debates, but I really don't want to live in a time that is interesting. I don't want to live through a war. I don't want to live through a pandemic. The cost of that is far too high. I think that's a relatively trivial thing to take away from a pandemic, but you've been thinking very hard for the last year about the history of humanity and about our difficulty in confronting death. What's a lesson that you personally have taken away from this work or that you think our listeners should take away to equip them better for a world of danger, of looming catastrophe? I think the most important takeaway for me is just how crucial freedom of thought and freedom of speech and freedom of publication are to the kinds of thinking and action that are necessary to prevent disaster. And what troubles me a lot at the moment is that the places where we ought to be doing that kind of thinking, universities, are less and less congenial places for free thought, free speech, and free publication. I came to the conclusion that the biggest danger maybe of all is a world that descends into totalitarianism, not because China invades and conquers, but because we kind of opt for totalitarianism. We opt for surveillance. We opt for censorship. We opt for denunciation. We opt for informing on people. So I end the book by saying, beware a creeping totalitarianism from within, from below, without, and this is one reason I'm so enthusiastic about persuasion, without no holds barred arguments about everything from what the origin of the coronavirus was to how good is our cybersecurity preparedness plan. Without that no holds barred debate, which is what attracted me into academic life, we'll almost certainly screw up much more than if we're able to speak our minds. Neil Ferguson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yash, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.